Well, we have Case Thorpe, who is our moderator-elect. Very privileged to have you, so let's give him our attention. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you would, join me for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for all the rich information and heart formation we've had this day and help us to continue to hear what you would have us to hear. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, uh, my name is Case Thorpe and I am an associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church of Orlando and uh, thrilled and honored to present before you today. So thank you, Westminster Society. Um, also to have an article in the journal is a, is a great honor too. So I have had a fantastic year studying more about common grace and learning. I mean, I had learned about it in seminary, but experiencing it in the midst of pastoral ministry and reading some of the greats and exploring scripture and just really digging into this topic and this idea. And I love that we have at the assembly uh, a venue to do deep theological work. Uh, it is important that we not lose our theological chops. And so I'm grateful for groups like Westminster and chances like this to, to share. I'm a little intimidated to come after Dr. Red and Glodo, my goodness. Um, it's also four o'clock. And so when half of you fall asleep, I know that you are covered by uh, mercy and grace. So um, you won't offend me because I might fall asleep myself. Uh, but I do want to begin by uh, laying out two sort of guardrails. And, and the first is that I come to you today as a practitioner, as a pastor who is now um, going into his 20th year of ordained ministry. And um, I have the joy of being on the front lines day to day with people in the pew and the people in the community experiencing and uh, walking through these sorts of ideas and topics and such. So I am clearly not an academic theologian and I'm still learning in a lot of ways. Number two, my focus is going to be on common grace in creation and in the church, and particularly how the church leads in the community, in the public square, particularly in mission and evangelism, and the vocational impact that common grace can have, as I'm in a lot of faith work and economics type work. So I, I lay that groundwork just to say I'm not going to be addressing the role of common grace in the debate over personal salvation or the free offer of the gospel debate that was so hot in the early part of the 20th century. So I just want to put those two uh, caveats, if you will, out there. So let me tell you a story as to why this doctrine caught my attention so much. So we at First Pres Orlando have been really working hard on faith, work, and economic type ministry. We have an effort called the Collaborative, which is much like... Redeemer Presbyterian, Tim Keller's Church in New York, Center for Faith and Work. Very grateful for their coaching and their advice and help along the way. And ours is a, a, a lot like theirs. We've got our own differences and uniquenesses. We use their curriculum, the Gotham Fellowship, for our leadership training. The Gotham Fellowship is a licensed curriculum that we get from Redeemer, and it's for Christ-centered professionals, 25 to age 75, who are hungry to learn a theology of, of culture-making, a theology of bearing witness and seeing culture uh, restored and renewed through work. And... Um, we are beginning our fifth cycle of the Gotham Fellowship this September. So we've gone through four years of this, and by this point we have about 60 alumni that have been through the program. And the first couple of years, I noticed something quite profound. It's right after Christmas, about January, February, when we hit the Common Grace readings. And there is just something about this topic that makes the light bulb go off in my fellows. And I couldn't understand why is it that, I mean, I, I've known what common grace is and I, I don't see that it's that uh, powerful, but it certainly was impacting these fellows quite, quite deeply. So then when we went to the, through the third year and then the fourth cycle, I really paid attention 
and I listened ever more closely to what I heard people saying back to me as they were reading about this idea and, and, and applying it to their lives <coughs> and their workplaces. And so I asked myself, why? Why is this doctrine, if you call it a doctrine or this idea, um, so helpful in discipleship? That's one of my first big questions. Why is this idea so helpful in discipleship? And then the second question I had was, well, why don't my people already know this? Why has it been so neglected and not taught in the life of the church? And so what is it about today's church? The evangelical church, the reformed church, the American church, certainly my context in Orlando. But I do think that some of the observations uh, I've brought up apply to more than just our tribe or our part of the kingdom. And that's what I've tried to do in the article is to unpack, unpack what exactly is this idea and how it's helpful and even speaks to some of the deeper issues going on in the American church. So I'm going to address things in just that order, and then I'll end with giving you six benefits of common grace. There's more, but I think these six are particularly helpful if you are a pastor or uh, an elder in your church uh, helping land the plane. Because uh, I love theology, but I also love landing the plane so that people can use it and use it well wherever God may call them. So... Um, Common grace. What is common grace? Al Walters, in his work Creation Regained, defines common grace as this. God's goodness to all men and women, believers and unbelievers alike. God's goodness to all men and women, believers and unbelievers alike. Believers and unbelievers alike. Now, before I give you some illustrations of common grace, or even pointed out in Scripture and in the Westminster Confession, I'd like to differentiate it from specific or special grace. I preached on this just this Sunday at my church, and it was real helpful that I had right in front of the pulpit our communion table with a big cross on it. And so I could easily point and say, specific or special grace is that grace that is afforded through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through his um, death and resurrection, through the empty tomb, through the power of the Holy Spirit that comes to the elect and not only gives us an eternal rest in him, but purpose in this age, restoration, and more. And so if that is specific and special grace... Common grace is contrasted with that. And common grace is not called common in an effort to demean it or belittle it. Um, a very um, uh, interesting individual in my life uh, got into an argument with me that there is nothing common about grace. Don't you know, Case? It's amazing. I'm like, well, look, look I, you know, I love Amazing Grace. I love the hymn. I wish I had been as thoughtful as uh, Professor Glodo and, and brought some words to sing. It'll keep you awake better. But common grace is called common because theologians have differentiated the goodness of God that comes to everyone that is not salvific. The goodness of God that comes to everyone that is not salvific. Some examples might be a piece of art that is powerful and moving, and yet not done by a Christian. And yet it is still something that conveys beauty and truth and goodness. I don't know that anybody here would assume that only Christian artists can do good art. In fact, seen some of the Christian movies that are out there lately? <laughs> God bless Kirk Cameron. <laughs> I'm really offending somebody here because I know you love the Kirk Cameron movies, but wow. Steven Spielberg, not a confessor, a uh, person who confesses Christ, but wow, Schindler's List. Like there is a powerful piece of art that conveys truth about humanity. That would be an example of common grace. God's goodness in this world that doesn't have to be stuck or aligned solely with your um, election status. 
Other examples might be uh, roads. I will, you know, like roads that you drive on, not Rhodes College. Uh, I will confess to being a very Amero-centric individual who loves this country, and I'm the first one to cry on July 4th during the Lee Greenwood singing on the stage in front of the Capitol. You know, I am proud to be an American. And that Amerocentrism works itself out in me such that when I go abroad, and I was a mission pastor for 12 years, I go to these other countries and I'm like, wow, they've got great buildings. <laughs> Who knew they could build sewer systems? <laughs> I, I thought only in America we had everything figured out. Oh, wow. Yes, there is goodness and order in this world that shows up in cultures where the gospel has not been at work for centuries and millennia. China's given us a run for our money, literally, on the money front. And while I'm grateful that the underground church soon might make China the largest Christian nation in the world, think about that. Think about how the politics are going to shift as that unfolds in the next coming decades. But China is one of the great civilizations of humanity that has incredible art and poetry and music and architecture and has learned to live and, and find order for their people. Examples of common grace, God's goodness in the world that comes even to unbelievers. Now, those who are not in the Reformed family look at this idea of common grace and go, Wow, that's really strange and odd. I, I don't understand why you would have to find a bucket or find a way to describe those things that are not of Scripture and the church and specific special grace. Well, it's because we believe in absolute depravity. We believe in absolute depravity. And by virtue of that doctrine, we logically have to conclude that if all is fallen... And if all in creation is broken, we should be living in a Mad Max kind of world. We should be at each other's throats, scrounging for survival. And yet, thankfully, the whole of the world is not like Aleppo is right now. The whole of the world is not like the slums of Bombay. There is order in some places. There are the truths of creation that are discovered and known. And if you're old school Presbyterian, you know the phrase, all truth is God's truth. And so if all truth is God's truth, even truth that shows up in cultures in which the gospel has not been at work for centuries, or when truth shows up in another religious tradition, oh, like... Could God's truth be somewhere in the Quran? That's a dangerous thing to say because we have our feelings about Muslims and the Quran and other traditions. And yet, if all truth is God's truth, there might be something in there. Now granted, it's not salvific. And granted, only God's special grace comes in and through His declared word and the work of Christ. But there are ways that truth can show up in other places. Did you know? Proverbs 31 and 30, and another chapter I don't have right now, actually come from non-Jewish traditions. That Solomon pulls together scriptures from the Egyptian culture and down in Arabia and puts them in our Bible so that they're not from the covenant people and yet he recognizes truth being proclaimed in those passages and puts them in his Proverbs. That is an attempt to define common grace. Let me give you some scriptural examples. Matthew 5.45. Jesus even shares. If you've got your Bibles, open them with me, as any good preacher should tell his people to do. Matthew 5.45. Jesus is at the Sermon on the Mount. When you hear Matthew 5-7, through 7, you instantly think Sermon on the Mount. And he says... He causes, the Father in heaven causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Rain doesn't just fall on the Christian farmer's field. Rain falls everywhere, whether one knows the Lord or not. Other passages, Hebrews 11 verse 20. 
Andrew, if you'll look that up for me. Let me get somebody to look up 2 Peter 3.9. Okay. 2 Peter 3.9. Who wants Jeremiah 16.5? Oh, all right. 16.5. Nehemiah 9.17. Nehemiah 9.17. And Genesis 17.20. Genesis 17.20. Okay, I'll put these on the board, and um, let's read those out loud. So who's got Hebrews 11.20? By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Okay. God gives blessings to Esau, even though Esau was not the one who carried the promise forward. He still got some of God's goodness, even if it wasn't the covenant promise. Somebody read 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Hmm. Not wishing that any should perish, we know some do, but even in that move and act of God's, it is considered good and common grace. Jeremiah 16, 5. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning, or go to lament or grieve for them, for I have taken away my peace from this people, but steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord. Okay. I have taken away a peace that I have given them. And he's speaking of an outside group from the Israelites. I have taken away my peace that I have given them. God gave a peace to a non-covenant people group. Interesting. Nehemiah 9.17 They refused to obey, were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and determined to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. Mm, you did not forsake them, although... In a justice sense, you had every right and purpose too. That's your goodness. And finally, Genesis 17, 20. As for Israel, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and will make him fruitful, and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make them into a great nation. Okay. So Ishmael, like Esau, not the son of the covenant promise, and yet still receives a degree of blessing from God. These aren't the only passages. When you start to look for this and see this in Scripture, it's going to show up all over the place. The Westminster Confession of Faith, even it speaks of such things. Chapter 10, verse 4. Others, not elect, may be called by the ministry of the word. And the Spirit may work in them in some of the same ways He works in the elect. Very explicit in an understanding that God is at work out there and you do not have to be a confessed follower of Jesus in order to have the Spirit at work in you. Another one is 23.1. Westminster Confession of Faith, 23.1. Let me put those up here. 23, 1, and what did I say? 10, 4. 23.1 is about civil authorities. God, the supreme Lord and King of the whole world, has ordained civil authorities to be over people under him for his own glory. So he's ordained authorities. I mean, all politicians are believers, right? <laughs> ah. Today, we had to announce to our preschool at First Pres Orlando, President Trump's coming. <laughs> the Secret Service has told us, you never know when and where what street we're going to shut down. And we, we told the parents, you may not be able to get to your kid. So you decide whether you want to have access to your kid or not. Half of them cleared the place out. <laughs> so no matter what you think about President Trump and his degree of confession of faith, the confession of faith here talks about how civil authorities to be ordained for what reason? It says, for God's glory and the public good. So there is an order there and a work of God that is irrespective of their status as being elect or non-elect. So a sense of what is this definition? And I want to look, look first at what's helpful, or what is it about today's church that makes this idea so helpful that I've observed. And then I'll connect it to discipleship. So I'm actually going to switch those around. 
So here I am now with my Gotham Fellows. This light bulb comes on as we digest this topic. And they use it again and again in the next few months. They talk about it in their final projects. It is something that really has resonated. But why? What is it about today's church that has caused this idea of God at work in the world to sort of take a back seat or not fully be taught? So I contend that we are malformed in our discipleship. That much of the discipleship that we are doing in today's church in America, particularly evangelical and even reformed churches, is malformed. And it is the discipleship needs to be corrected and done in a better way. We are doing some radical uh, major shifts at our church as we try to shift from being attractional one of the best examples in the 90s, people. Howard Eddington, my goodness, that full city block, all, I mean, woo, attraction, no. And yet, we are one of those 300,000 out of 380,000 churches in America that is plateaued or in decline. And I suspect that some of us in here, some of you in here, are also part of some of those churches. Seven out of eight American churches, people are going downhill. So we are doing some radical shifts and changes to get in this missional direction. We have eliminated every committee of the session. Some of you church planners are going, what's a committee? Some of you old school Presbyterians are going, can they do that? For an old school Presbyterian church like ours with a lot of chimneys, we're doing it. And one of the things we've talked about is how shallow our discipleship has become. Small groups or shared ignorance. Biblical illiteracy is a plague on the life of the church. People don't know our story. Malformed discipleship, I think, has come about because of two things. Cultural disobedience and dualism. Cultural disobedience and dualism. And I want to be specific, church cultural disobedience. Oh, we know the outside world's going to hell. (laughs) We know America is so far from its days as a light on a shining hill. We don't have to argue that point. No, no, I'm talking about church culture and the degree of disobedience that has arisen. So what I want to do is unpack these two things, and then I'm going to circle back and show you how Common Grace has something big to say about this and this that has caused the light bulb to come off, come on for a lot of people. Cultural disobedience, what is that? Richard Mao, the retired president of Fuller Theological Seminary, and for many years was at Calvin College, um, he says that cultural disobedience is the degree to which the church and a Christian conform to the brokenness of the culture. Okay? The degree to which a church or a Christian conforms to the brokenness of the greater culture. U.S. churches, I think, and I write in the article, for the past 50 years have adopted political agendas and secular movements. We have adopted both left and right political agendas and secular movements, and at times taken our eye off the purpose for which we were created. They've taken our eye off our primary mission. Are Christians to be empire builders? Are we to be prophetic voices? How do we find the balance in the midst of that? I'll quote you directly from the journal. With hindsight, we can see prime examples of cultural disobedience that guided church leaders of the late 20th century, both evangelical and progressive Protestants. Each pushed the church towards a political activism in tension with the church's historic mission. Such political activism unfolded both in the public square and within denominations at times compromising missional effectiveness. Evangelicals married public policy to the Republican Party platform. The Moral Majority and Christian Coalition, of which I was once a member, I was a religion major at Emory University, 40% Jewish, crazy liberal, everybody's second choice that didn't get into Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. Let me tell you, apathy 
I was the only evangelical in the religion department, and I was so sick and tired of being everybody's kicking boy, I went and signed up with Ralph Reed so I could be obnoxious and hold my card up in class and say, now wait a minute, people. If we're going to be fair and respectful of everybody, I'm a member of the Christian Coalition. Didn't go over so well. <laughs> the moral majority and Christian Coalition of which I was a member were held up as the answer. As if politics was the problem in our country and the American church. Progressive church leaders, meanwhile, enacted their revisionist agenda to the scriptural witness, confessional doctrines, and ordination practices of mainline churches like the PCUSA, Episcopal Church USA, ELCA, and more. Along with it, they have sacrificed, all in the name of love, clear leadership, orthodox belief, and the membership roles of countless churches. The results are ample. Membership is in decline, congregations are aging, and there is incredible missional apathy. Evangelical baby boomers, such as my parents, who are soon to walk through that door, if their plane would hurry up, <laughs> operated under the false notion that their cultural wars were winnable in the short term and winnable via legislation rather than the heart. No ticker tape parades for the cultural battle victories ever came. The top-down approach, legislation via political control, didn't work. Progressive baby boomers, with good intentions and great gusto, failed in remaking the church and culture relationship as they otherwise did in the greater culture, in gender roles, pop culture, and the marketplace. The church at times lost her way, and these were hard lessons in cultural disobedience. Nearing the end of the first quarter in the 21st century, we have a church, as described by Marilyn McIntyre, as clubby, exclusionary, oversimplified, imitating pop culture, boring, and partisan. Now, I'm an insider, clearly, and I see the church as Dr. Red shared this incredible, unified people in whom the Spirit is at work with their eyes on the beatific vision. But when I talk to a lot of the girls that my wife runs with who do not go to church, what they see in us is clubby, exclusionary, oversimplified, imitating pop culture, and really poorly, boring, and partisan. I mean. Not saying it's true, I'm saying that's what they see. How can the church compete when we have people watching six to eight hours of Fox News and CNN every day? How have our churches become how have our churches become more a personal platform to affirm one's political identity than bodies of Christ that are foremost about discipleship, missional effectiveness, and evangelism? How many people in your church are members of the other political party? I venture to guess no more than fifteen to twenty percent. If you are on a left kind of a church and you're mostly Democrats, I just, I just have not seen churches, or if you're on the right with mostly Republicans, usually you, you don't get above the 10 to 15% of folks from the other party. So the premise here is cultural disobedience within the church and how we've conformed to the brokenness of culture has made us think about God's grace in different ways and allowed us to ignore common grace. Point number two, dualism. Dualism actually reinforces, I'm sorry, cultural disobedience actually reinforces dualism. Tim Keller defines dualism as an unchristian worldview that separates the spiritual and sacred from the rest of life. It separates the sacred from the secular. Dualism and the dualistic thinking, the dualistic language that we use does this separation. And it results, as Keller says, in Christians looking to their faith for personal salvation, but to the rest of their lives being shaped by culture. Hey, I got saved at the church. Let's go there and talk about personal morality. Oh, what do I believe about this or that? How do I live my workout in this way or that way? What should my family formation look like? And what should I believe politically? And how do I operate in the public square? Don't hear me as saying the church shouldn't be active in the public square. But how should we be in the public square? We begin to act in these dualistic ways, separating the sacred from the secular. Where did this come from? The Enlightenment 
this movement of thought and practice from 1600s to 1800s promoted radical individualism. And radical individualism meant that the human, the man, the woman, the individual was what was most important as over and against institutions or community. There um, came through that then a sexual revolution and an understanding of how we are to live out our um, personal lives. And there's unfolding even now with us, as a result of the Enlightenment, an anthropology revolution. What is a human? We see it play out with our sexual politics and now the transgender politics and the transgender conversations totally undermining the homosexual agenda. Like, we're really questioning what is a human and we as Christians need to reclaim what is a Christian anthropology. Well, all those sorts of things lead us to then think and act in dualistic ways. That there is a sacred time and place Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, here on holy ground. We are standing on holy ground. You know, blue laws. I actually want some more blue laws to come back. It is way too easy to get way too much alcohol where I live. But, <laughs> you know, oh, pastor, you do your thing on Sunday. Well, I got to go to work on Monday. You know, that's cute and all for the church, but now I got to go to the real world. Oh, the sacred, the secular, this division. Oh, we in our church love our pastors in their Geneva gowns and missionaries. Yes, this young person's been called to the ministry. We're going to bring them up front. We're going to lay hands on them. We are going to elevate and celebrate sacred vocations and never say a thing about the men and women who are retiring on a daily basis in our congregations, lifting up engineers, teachers, realtors, all the other thousands of jobs out there in the world. It's, an un, it's a very subtle way in which we say that there are sacred things and there are secular things, and this dualism so divides. Now, as the Enlightenment continued to unfold, we get in the 20th century, traditionalists and culture, which a lot of us are and come from, sought to shield their children from Elvis, Madonna, and now Lady Gaga. Okay, how many of you's parents got really upset when you were watching Elvis or the Beatles? Woo! Honey, Elvis in that pelvis. I remember my mother with reacting to Madonna. And about five or six years ago, there was some quote where Madonna said, Oh, I would never let my children da-da-da-da-da. And my mom's like, You totally corrupted my kids. And yet now, right? Um, and Lady Gaga. Well, what happened was we began to adopt Niebuhr's Christ against culture stance. Niebuhr has several stances in the way in which the church responds to culture. And we began to, as evangelicals in America, Christ against culture. And friends, that's an Anabaptist stance. That's not a Reformed stance. A Reformed understanding of the church and culture is that we lean in as salt and light. Not worrying about our own corruption because salvation is secure in Christ. But we lean in in order to be of influence and to help bring about restoration and redemption. But yet, we began to act like a lot of Anabaptists. And we created a Christian subculture that produced Kirk Cameron movies. <laughs> Andy Crouch does it beautifully as he describes that we took a couple of different approaches and one of those was copying culture to create our subculture, our ghetto. That this sacred secular idea of dualism allowed us to create our little Christian ghetto and attractional churches. And we're trying to get over the drug of attractional church and ask ourselves, what do we do with all this property when we can't even get an adult convert? Common grace, though, I think helps us so much. And the reason why the light bulbs were going off in my fellows' brains and hearts was because they were living in all of this, not knowing they're living in all of this. And common grace came along and said to cultural disobedience. God isn't at work solely in you and through you. That God is at work around you, before you, <laughs> and after you. That you aren't, as Christians, the 
only holders of all of my grace. Yes, you are the primary instrument through which my mission of the world is unfolding as you share the story of my mission of the world and the work of Christ and the call to his elect. But I'm also out there doing some other stuff. And so you aren't the only ones that have to worry about this. So therefore, get out of your cultural ghetto. Quit making cheap copies of culture. Quit critiquing and being so against culture. Cut the hubris and the pride. Humble yourselves and go produce real culture. And create originality. Create originality that is for the common good for all, not just for your subculture. Don't conform to the brokenness, but rather... Go and create, and in your creating, know that my common grace is at work, even in other cultures and other places. Common grace says to dualism, we are instruments, co-laborers in God's mission to the world. We as Christ followers. And God's mission through his sovereignty and owning every square inch is through is his means of restoration and redemption via Christ. That's his greatest mission. So therefore, all of life is integrated and not divided. All of life is integrated. Kill dualism for integrated life. For holism, if you will. Oh, we love to make fun of the millennials. I do too. I don't have skinny jeans, thank goodness. But the reason we see these... The, the love of craftsmanship and leather goods and craft beer. and It's this cultural yearning for real. For integrated understandings that I am congruent and the same person Sunday as I am Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. In and through my work, the cheap plastic offerings of this world are not enough. And so that's what Common Grace has to say to dualism. Common grace, God's goodness to all believers and unbelievers alike is a great need and helpful for discipleship because it speaks squarely against the disobedience that our churches have gotten themselves into and says, hey, recognize you are a tool in my mission of the world and cut your pride, cut your hubris, be the humble people of love that I've called you to be. And number two, Quit doing this separation of sacred and secular, but rather integrate and live holistic lives. Now let me end with six benefits. You'll see all this kind of come together in some practical application, and then we can do questions. Six ways to better form a Christian follower, a Christ follower. Remember I said that this premise is based on malformed discipleship. Well, what would better discipleship look like and how can it help us in our mission and evangelism in the public square? Number one, elitism and partisanship dissipates in churches as Christians see themselves biblically first before they see themselves culturally and even politically. Okay, so number one, elitism and partisanship dissipate. They go down. They're always going to be there to some degree. The church, I think, as our church does with its position papers, does and should take a stand on abortion. Immediately that is a statement out in the public square, so it is political. It's the intertwining with certain political parties in certain ways that have gotten us into trouble, problematic places. But these um, partisanship places can dissipate as we see ourselves first biblically, and secondarily, all these other senses of identity. If we're reading more scripture than we're watching Fox News, that's a good thing. If we see ourselves first as co-laborers in God's mission of the world, and then secondarily, all the different identity markers that come, that's a good thing. If God shows grace beyond the covenant people, we can't so quickly and easily presume that we're always right. Could God be at work through your friend and that other political party? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. You know? Could God be at work through that initiative in the city that you think is just redonkulous? Well, I'm not saying don't stand for truth and don't push certain agendas, but do so with a humility of heart and um, not with a 
chip on one's shoulder that then does not promote dialogue and uh, common engagement. Number two, common grace, how does it benefit us? While all is depraved, not all is lost. While all is depraved, clearly, not all is lost. And so, all humanity can and will pursue the common good within just and merciful structures. Restoration is possible. Your children, friends, may actually honeymoon in Aleppo. Think about that. Anybody been to Vietnam lately? Did some of you of a certain era, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, ever think that you'd take a cruise and stay at an eco-resort in Vietnam? Restoration is possible. So God's goodness is at work out there in ways that we can't imagine or understand. Not that it's free of sin or brokenness, but there is order and goodness that can occur. Number three, and a bit related, a non-Christian has what the confession calls civic righteousness to offer. And this gives us a category to understand our reprobate co-workers and their contribution. Okay? It gives us a category to understand. Because without common grace, we are left to, to wonder, how is it that if all is sinful or broken, can a non-believer produce something that is right, good, or beautiful? Is there an accountant three cubicles down from you who's numbers are actually better? Who doesn't know Jesus, but yet is an incredible accountant? How do I understand and write my co-worker's contribution even if they don't know the gospel? And that was one of the biggest light bulbs that helped my people understand because living in this culturally disobedient church and living with this subtle, if not often explicit understanding of dualism, they were kind of coming into work thinking, well, I'm extra special, right? Because I have the Holy Spirit. And my work is better because I'm a Christian doing work, and yet I don't understand why the um, designs I'm producing aren't as good as Joe Schmo's. And Joe Schmo is one of the worst uh, unethical party animals that defames the name of Christ. This helps us to understand, wow, there is goodness at work out there even beyond the elect. Number four, five, and six. Four, Christ followers learn to frame their vocational contribution as an expression of God's mission to the world. This is another one of the biggies. Christ followers learn to frame their vocational contribution as an expression of God's mission to the world. Why are you an accountant? Because as God began his work of grace after the fall and extended it through the covenants, advances it through the work of Christ and calls the church through the power of the Holy Spirit, I am here as an accountant to help companies make more profit so they can pay their people better and communities can flourish. It's until we get to the New Jerusalem upon Christ's return. You know, my vocational role is within the greater work of God. Why um, are you a housekeeper at Disney? Because I have no other options? No! But you meet someone with the gift of hospitality who recognizes I am here to create a beautiful space so that families can rest and relax and be ready for their next event in life. I am a part of God's work of restoration and redemption here in this broken age until Christ comes back. Just imagine housekeeping in the New Jerusalem. Imagine accounting in the New Jerusalem. Locksmiths in the New Jerusalem, I haven't figured that one out yet. <laughs> Common grace levels the kingdom of God playing field because it isn't just up to the Christians to redeem and restore. It can bear witness in prompt conversations on salvation and our purpose. We're still in number four. But when you know your vocation in the midst of God's mission of the world, you can bear witness to your coworkers as to, why are you here? Because I'm trying to make more money than you. So my wife can be in an SUV and we can go to private school and... No. Why are you here? Because I'm a part of God's mission of the world. And he's gifted me and given me opportunity to help do that work. Why are you here? Because I just want to make money. <laughs> or... I couldn't get into medical school, or this is what I do. I, you know, I don't know why I'm here. 
Keller and others will say, and I agree with this, purpose is one of the greatest apologetic tools to use with others. Because purpose is the big, exciting idea of our culture, and very few have answers towards that. Number five, works of common grace proclaim the glory of God. Hello, Rocky Mountains. Works of common grace, nature, proclaim the glory of God. And non-believers need to hear us acknowledge God is at work outside of the church. That helps people realize we see the greater work of God and the role of the church in his world. So works of common grace can proclaim the glory of God. And when you articulate that and say that, it helps people realize um, a better word. And that leads to the final one, number six, humility. Humility. When we emphasize common grace and when we train our people and disciple them in such ways, we are less assuming and prideful. We are more open to other answers, other ideas that may not be solely the ones that come from the church or a Christian per se. We join our non-believing co-workers arm in arm for the joy of our work rather than compete because we are part of God's mission, not our own. We carry greater humility because we recognize we're on God's mission through in and through our work and not just our own, our own success. And it levels the playing field in the public square because we are able to find common ground with Muslims and Hindus and atheists and others that, hey, homelessness is a problem. We don't have to get into doctrine, but we can work together on these social ills. Um, it helps in tremendous ways. So to review, and then I'll love to open it up for any Q&A. Common grace, this doctrine different from specific grace that has kind of faded into the background and something I think we need to teach more and put out there more because it helps to form better disciples. Our churches are so caught up in cultural disobedience and dualism, we unintentionally disciple and form our people to get so focused and stuck on just special grace that they don't recognize their place and their role in the greater public square and in the greater world and how God is at work out there. And so I think the more we can do of this, the healthier our people will be and the healthier our churches will be. Common grace. Questions, comments, even on uh, anything I may have shared here or on the work we're trying to do at the collaborative. Yes, sir. Much of the, with, with speaking to dualism, uh, do you think that that is uh, like penetrated in the church almost unrecognizably? Un, um, For instance, uh, when you see a Christian athlete in high school sign with a college and they give that infamous quote in the interview, my faith is such a big part of my life. Yeah. And that compartmentalizing of Christianity. Well, that particular example, I might think in the other direction that they are integrating their prayer time on their knees with their sports playing mm -hmm. and being able to give public witness to that. <laughs> How do you see that as dualistic? Well, it's because like whenever, they, whenever they're referring to it, are, are they referring to it in the manner that it is something that is inf and informing every aspect of their life or is it simply a part ah, of their life? A part. I say that from personal experience because I was there. Sure. As that person. Well, it is so all over us, even at First Prince Orlando. So I love my Geneva gown, and I don't want to give it up. But is, as some have said, uh, you know, Calvin reformed only so far. He could have gone a whole lot further. And um, do, how do we have those explicit and subtle practices in our worship that promote sacred-secular kind of divides as opposed to a holistic integration. And um, I'm, I'm very conscious of that, even in the midst of the Southern Presbyterianism that I love and practice. Uh, Tom Nelson's a great example out of Kansas City, Christ Community Church, of one who has sort of taken that sharp dualism filter to almost every single thing they do to note because he recognizes uh, formation and the way in which we live together and do our liturgy and that um, is, is, creates and shapes us and molds us that then plays itself out when we get out in the see, hear me, out in the real world.
curious, um, the, the idea of division is something that you uh, helpfully pointed out that is, is worthy of avoiding. And yet, you've also pointed out that the, dis the distinctiveness uh, the church is called to um, to be salt and, and light. And so, um, with common grace, how how would you encourage, uh, or maybe even any concrete examples, how do you pursue that that tension? We don't divide, and yet we seek by grace to, to be distinct, to be a yeah. holy people. Yeah, absolutely. We are resident aliens. Um, I think you live, you, you surf the edge of chaos by being called, by being filled with the Spirit and leaning in, leaning into the hard conversations, the secular culture, the prophetic voice, um, rather than our broken human tendency to go one of two ways, which is all in on assimilation, which we who have come out of the PCUSA have learned is so unhelpful, but neither we're, uh, pulling back into our ghettos. And it's, it's the harder place to be. It's the greater walk of faith. And when somebody's figured it out, they can write the book and we'll all buy it and read it. Last question and then we'll wrap it up. You said you were a missions pastor for 12 years. I imagine these conversations came up a lot with church partnerships with community organizations. Any reflections on that? Whew, a lot. Where I take such pride in the evangelical parachurch ministries that are out there doing great social type ministry, etc. And yet then I, our church was a part of an effort with five downtown churches to create um, um, a ministry called iDignity, where we help the poor get the necessary identification, social security card, birth certificate, etc. to live in life. And these churches are all over the map theologically. Liberal Methodists, to Roman Catholic, to Baptists, to us, Lutherans that didn't know what they believed. I mean, it was all over the place. And it really came down to when we incorporated and they asked me to be the first president of the board and we've got to get personnel policies and we are writing the job description of the executive director whose genius created the whole thing. And he's a liberal Methodist who's a universalist. And here I am, president of the board. And I said, we need to have a confession of faith in the job description that they subscribe to. And he said, I can't subscribe even to that. I'm like, okay, fine. Then, then they need to be a member of one of the five downtown churches. Well, but blah, 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 blah. And well, okay, then they need to be a member of a church. Like we just kept going back and forth and it kept getting watered down and back and forth. And so I, um, I had to let go of that desire of mine, knowing you got to let organizations evolve and go where they go. But it's, it's just one of the real examples of how these things play themselves out. Yeah. Friends, thank you. Um, you can follow up with me on the website or Twitter, and um, I'll see you around this week. God bless.